talking, everyone. If you were here last week, we talked about heaven, which means this week we're talking about hell. It's great, those of you who are visiting for the first time. It's usually like this. So hell, we're in the second to the last week of this series called The End of All Things, uh, and hell, hell is going to be difficult just like heaven was difficult because both heaven and hell um, have been in our minds for a long time, and the images that we hold in our minds are not necessarily from Scripture. A lot of times they're just from culture. It's what we envision because kind of the collective conscience of our culture has an idea of what heaven and hell look, look like. Now, here's the thing. We're going to talk about hell. If God is good, and He's good all of the time, then hell has to be an act of goodness. So however you envision it, whatever you think of it, it has to be rooted in the good nature of God. So if it's not seen as some type of good thing in your mind, we have to realign this idea of hell with what the scriptures are trying to teach us. Now, to do that, like most things, you have to go and get the beginning right, because oftentimes we get the very, very beginning of the, the plot wrong. Uh, so you know how the Bible starts, right? In the beginning, God creates heaven and hell. Now, don't look it up, just trust me. It's in the beginning, God creates heaven and hell. No, it's like we laugh because we know God creates heaven and earth. But oftentimes, and again, this is because of culture influencing our, our minds, we think of heaven and hell as the partners. We use this term functionally different equal opposites. If you've been here for a long time, you, you know I've used that term a lot. But in Genesis chapter 1, God creates pairs of functionally different equal opposites. So you have night, day, sun, moon, land, sea, and then... The other pair, male-female, comes together in marriage, mimicking what heaven and earth are supposed to do. Heaven and earth are to be united, not at odds with each other. Heaven and earth are the partners, not heaven and hell. But we usually think heaven and hell, not heaven and earth. If you were to search your Bible, you actually won't find a single place when heaven and hell are put together as pairs. Not a single one. But over a hundred times, you'll hear the Bible, the scriptures, the Psalms talk about heaven and earth. Hell belongs to what we'll call the invasive species. So God creates this beautiful world. It's a good world for human beings to flourish in. Satan, sin, death all come after. Satan, sin, death are the intruders into God's good creation. And the question that the Bible is posing at the very, very beginning, page one, two, and three, is... How is God going to do with the intruders? What is God going to do with the destructive forces that are wreaking havoc on his good creation? That is the plot. That is what's central, and that's what begins on the first few pages of the Bible. But, like I said, we have uh, tons of ideas about what hell is like. We'll call them, I have a hard time saying this word, it's a joke, uh, among the staff, so whenever I say caricature. Uh, see, Sam, see, just cheered. I usually have to stop and like Sam or Kevin, hey, okay, hold on. I, I can't do it. I had, a, I had a speech problem growing up, so I didn't, see, see what's happening? I just start talking about your speech problem, it starts to come out. Um, 
And so, you know, I've been working real hard to impress you on pronouncing this word correctly. Caricature. Uh, we have caricatures of heaven. Yeah. I worked on the sermon for two hours and that for nine. Uh, but n- n- now here's the thing. I just want you to picture hell. And again, just like we did with heaven if you were here last week, picture hell. Don't think of the, the right biblical answer. Don't think what, what you should be imaging in your head. Just first things that come to your mind. Hell, what floods your mind? What images? It's like fire always, right? It's fire. And maybe sometimes there's little red demon creatures with horns and they got pitchforks and they're kind of running the show down there. Oftentimes the caricature looks like this. Uh, an elder of the church by the name of Greg Whitaker sent this to me last week because in Heaven's sermon I talked about how in the cartoons the spirit dies and they float up as a little ghost into heaven. And I mentioned Sylvester the cat doing that. And he said, no, 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 in Looney Tunes canon, Sylvester the cat goes to hell. He said, correct your theology. So, I, so I've, I've, you know, it's what you do. You publicly repent. Dang, I didn't think that'd get that big of an emotional response. <laughs> so, yeah, he's, he's going he's to go in the flames. Now, that's how we picture hell, if we're honest. We picture hell as the underground torture chamber where God has hired the demons and Satan to torture people for all eternity. And even if we, we kind of in our hearts and our minds, we, we say we know better than that, that's what we picture. That's the first thing that comes to our mind. And so what we want to do today is say, what does the Bible have to say about hell? And even we're going to see in a moment, even the word hell is misleading. And then two, we want to work off the premise of God's goodness. If you are a Christian, you believe God is good all of the time. Not just a little bit good, not just sometimes good, not just mostly good, but sometimes he has a bad day. God is extravagantly, abundantly, gloriously good all of the time. Every act that flows from him flows from his goodness. So how is the plot, the story of the Bible working? God creates heaven and earth. Satan, sin, death wreak havoc on it. What will God do to the intruders who are destroying his good creation? This idea of hell comes out of that narrative not a narrative that says, in the beginning, God created heaven and hell. Now, first, what does the Bible have to say about hell? Hardly anything, because the Bible doesn't talk about hell. It talks about Gehenna. Now, some of you, if you've been in the church a long time, you might have heard this before, but whenever Jesus talks about the final destination of people who consistently rebel against God, he doesn't use the Greek word for hell. That's Hades. He uses the word Gehenna, and that's taken from a Hebrew root that has to do with the location called the Valley of Hinnom. So when you see in the scriptures, Jesus talks about the fires of hell, he's talking about the fires of the Valley of Hinnom. Now the question is, why does Jesus use this location to describe the final destination of those who are in continual rebellion to God? Some things you have to know about the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. First, it's an actual location. This is a picture of Jerusalem, and outside of the city, there's that kind of ridge area, and you draw a big circle around it. That's the Valley of Hinnom. That's Gehenna. 
So whenever Jesus is talking about hell in the scriptures, he goes, oh, you don't, if, if you die and you don't repent, you're going to there. Now, if you look at it, you're kind of going, eh, not too bad. Not too bad. I mean, not the, not the best place, but kind of looks like Gilroy, actually, our hills, you know? <laughs> not too shabby. <clears throat> Three things about Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, you need to know. First, it didn't look like that when Jesus talked about it. In the first century world, the people of Jerusalem would take out all of their trash and whatever they didn't want, whatever they wanted to discard, and they would burn it there. So it's a giant burning dump. So the images that are invoked when you talk about the Valley of Hinnom Gehenna are that of fire and smoke, and I'm sure it stank. It stink was horrible. It's, it's weird. It's both dry and wet because fire dries things out, but also they're, they're throwing materials in there. There was maggots there, so, so it's just a, the nastiest place you can think of. So when Jesus wants to describe <clears throat> the location of those who rebel against God, he goes, oh, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go to, the, to Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. Second important thing about the Valley of Hinnom is the fires that burned there in the first century mirror other fires that took place there hundreds of years before. This is a verse from the book of Jeremiah, hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called my name to defile it. The critical part here, verse 31. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did nor did it come into my mind. So what's taking place? People are worshiping false gods, and they are literally sacrificing their children in the fires there to these false gods. So the Jews in the first century picked a place of absolute decadent paganism where child sacrifice occurred, and they said, that's never going to happen. It's like, we're never going to do that again. So rather than allow this to take place we're going to turn this ancient place of paganism into a burning heap of trash forever. Like, we're not, we're not even going to build on it. No cities go up here, nothing. This is the Valley of Hinnom. This is where evil took place. So the first image of the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, is that of a dump. The second image is the place where the worst sin can take place. The worst possible sin takes place in Gehenna. I mean, that's the worst thing you could think of the sacrifice of children. The third image has to do with its location relative to the city of Jerusalem. It's outside of the city walls. Now, we're modern people, so city walls aren't important to us. Like we don't, we're, we're not arguing that, you know, Gilroy, you know, we need to, to get a wall around Gilroy so that when the, the armies come in, you know, we can run to, this, to, to the city inside the city walls. But city walls in the ancient world were incredibly important. That's the place of safety. That's the place where you run to get shelter from invading armies. City walls matter. Gehenna is the dump yard. It is the place of paganism, and it's outside of God's holy city, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Hebrew, means it's the peace of God. 
So the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, is the city of the peace of God. Outside of the peace of God, the shalom of God, is the place where evil takes place. So you got three images there. First, burning dumpyard. Two, evil, pagan sacrifice. Three, outside of the city where evil is, is done. Now, this is the image that Jesus invokes when he talks about the final destination of all the wicked. He uses other images, and these oftentimes inform us or they, they fill our minds again with the character, caricature, see, messed up, uh, of, of what hell should look like. So I want to show you a couple verses that, that describe this location. I want you to take note of how it's being described, the pictures that come to your mind. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So image number one is a furnace, fiery furnace. Second verse, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. First image, fiery furnace. Second image, complete darkness. Third verse, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexual immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So one image is a lake, one's a furnace, one's complete darkness. Now, here's, here's where we get into trouble. We take these images, and we want to make them all literal. But if you take them all literal, they're incongruent with each other. Fire makes light. It can't be completely dark if there's a bunch of fire around. So you, you can't even picture it. So is Jesus painting the, a false picture? Is Jesus being inconsistent? And the answer is no. Jesus wants to pick the worst possible imagery to describe a place that he doesn't want any one of his children to go to. These are images designed to give you a glimpse of the reality of Gehenna. But is, is it fire or dark? That's not, that's not his point. His point is, it's a bad, bad place. I mean, he could have said, like, it is the place where 24-7 only romantic comedies play. It is the second death. Like just pi picture the things you hate most. And so what Jesus wants you to picture is something Gehenna-like. Something Gehenna-like. And there's all kinds of debate upon what that actually will be like. And I'm, and I'm just telling you, the scripture uses tons of images, and they're often inconsistent with each other. The point is, it's a bad place. Now, there is, however, a... an image that's grounded in the big giant story the Bible is telling, the narrative of the Bible that will ground our understanding of Gehenna. In the book of Revelation, and this goes back to last week, it describes the final destination, new heavens, new earth. Heaven and earth come back together in marriage, not 
heaven and hell. It's heaven and earth coming back together in marriage. And this is how it describes this. Now, this is what the Bible, as it ends, wants you to picture of the final, wants you to picture the final destination. Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So what's the image? A city coming down. And in this city, it's a new Jerusalem. You get the image now. It's a new peace of God. It's the new shalom of God. Prior to this, the new shalom of God, or the shalom of God, the city of God, the people of God, were attacked. Satan, sin, death, evil, suffering. God's going to make all things new, and the new city comes down, and there's a marriage again. What about all the things and people who would continue to wreak havoc on God's good creation? It goes on. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of the city gates, the city walls, outside, verse 15, most important thing today, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So we can get lost on the images here, but here's the point. Everyone in the ancient world knows what Jesus is saying here. God is going to quarantine evil outside of the city. Why is he going to quarantine evil outside of the city? Not to systematically torture people who rebelled against him. It is to quarantine anyone who would ever disobey and wreak havoc on God's good creation. God had a plan in Genesis 1. He wants to create a world free from, from, from sin and suffering. The intruders come in. What's God going to do about it? It's like a, this is the beauty. It works almost like as a fairy tale. One day, the good king will return to his city. He will drive out evil. He will drive them outside of the city walls. And everyone within the new shalom of God will be forever protected. And evil will be quarantined forever. This gets at the heart of the motivation. Because the caricature of hell looks something like this. God is going to employ a bunch of demons to systematically torture people for all eternity. Do you know hell was, who is hell made for according to the scriptures, first and foremost? For Satan and his demons. Hell is not the location that Satan reigns, where Satan reigns. It's not the place where the demons are in charge. Gehenna, being kicked outside of the city, is the place where Satan and the demonic realm is quarantined and punished. And if as an image bearer, you refuse to bow the knee to the king, you will be driven out from the city too, to Gehenna, outside of the city, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, God doesn't want that for any human being, but that is what the good king must do to preserve the goodness of the new city, the new creation. 
He's not going to allow any, any more evil to break in. When you picture Gehenna, hell, picture the place that is outside of the city, a place God doesn't want anyone to go to, but God is also committed to preserving the goodness of the new creation, and anyone who refuses to bow the knee to King Jesus will be driven out of the city when the king returns. And there, there will be all the images that Jesus uses, not literally, but darkness, fire, where the worm dieth not. It's a place you don't want to go. There's a powerful verse in the book of Revelation. It says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You get this. I'm doing my best to avoid a Lord of the Rings illustration here, but <laughs> in Lord of the Rings and in most of the fairy tales we tell, what does the good king have to do? He goes and reclaims his people. He saves them from evil. He returns to the city. Do you remember in the book or, or the movie, Aragorn has to go to the, to the place of the dead and then he comes out and drives out wickedness? That's the image. Jesus is coming soon, and he's bringing his recompense with him, and he's going to judge everyone. And you can either submit to the king of peace, the prince of peace, your maker, the God of goodness and love, or you could refuse him, rebel, and be driven out of the city. Jesus is coming. How you live matters. Maybe the best poet to capture this Johnny Cash you know this song you can run on for a long time some of you know it well already sing it you can run on for a long time run on for a long time sooner or later God's going to cut you down God's only going to let evil go on so long before he chops it down and that's good news if we were to talk about just the amount of suffering that's been in this room, every heart would ache for God to finally do away with injustice, evil, and suffering. I'm not just, I mean, we don't, we don't do this often because it, it's a scary task, but reflect on the evil nature of this world. I mean, the things that occur in this place are terrible. Think... I'm talking about evil. Don't, don't think of like, like when you get cut off on the freeway. It's like, if you're a parent, as soon as your child could comprehend these concepts, you had to teach them about inappropriate touches. What type of world do we live in where we have to teach three and four-year-olds this? And that's here. Other places in the world... You're teaching your, your children how to watch out for sex traffickers. Oh, you think that sounds like a good job, honey? No, no, no. There are no good jobs in our, in, in our, in our area. That's too good to be true. You'll be trafficked. Think about people who were the architects of genocide. 
people who systematically thought up the annihilation of hundreds of thousands or millions of people. What is God going to do with that? See, oftentimes people wrestle with the question, you know, if God is so good, how could he, how could he make a place like hell? And that's a difficult question, but there's a far more difficult question. If God is so good, how can he let evil go unchecked for so long? How could he continue to let the, the evil in this world go on? And I could tell you right now, the problem of evil, theologically, philosophically, is unsolvable without the return of Christ. If Christ does not return and make things right, human beings have, have, have every right to say, God, how could you allow this? And God is saying, I am allowing it for just a moment. But I will make it right. And the reason why he hasn't made it right thousands of years ago, because those destructive forces that wreak havoc on God's good creation that I mentioned, they're not out there. They're in you. And if God were to snap his fingers and do away with all evil right now, we all die. Because we actively contribute to the disruption of God's shalom every day. Every day. And the, the, the longer you've been a Christian and the more kind of you become sanctified and, you know, you think you're more like Christ, the more, you know, the more you become aware of, of what's wrong in your life, the sin in your life, you become aware of it. It's like, man, I get angry over the dumbest things. You know, Jesus says, don't, don't, don't let the, the sun go down on your anger. It's like, the sun goes down and the, I'm, I'm still angry at the most dumb thing. And some of you know this. You reflect on your behaviors and you go, I worry about this. I stress about this. I get angry about this. I lust like this. I do this. I do that. It's like those destructive forces messing up God's good world, they're in all of us. And so God is going to drive it all out. But if you refuse to own up to that and continue in your rebellion against the rightful king of heaven and earth, you will be driven out too. There's going to come a day where God ends sex trafficking. The architects of genocide will not escape his judgment. Wickedness will be defeated. And that's why the Johnny Cash song is so appropriate. You can run on for a long time. No, you make no mistake about it. Sooner or later, the king's coming and he's gonna chop them down. And then this is what's so good about that song is Johnny Cash is like, if that's true, if Christ is going to return and drive out evil, well then you better go tell those people, this is evangelism. It's like it doesn't sound like it in the context of the song, this is evangelism. Go tell the long-tongued liar, go tell the midnight rider, tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter, you go tell them God's gonna cut them down. Like it's a warning. It is a warning. The king is coming. Oftentimes, people need to hear the gospel message and be reminded how much God loves them and forgives them. That's nine, when, when modern Americans tell someone the gospel, that's how it sounds 99% of the time. It's rare that we tell someone, dude, you're wicked. God's only going to let that go for so long, but the king's coming. You need to repent. How did Jesus primarily preach the gospel in, the, in his ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. One more Johnny Cash verse. 
Well, you may throw your rock and hide your hand, working in the dark against your fellow man, but as sure as God made black and white, what's done in the dark will be brought to the light. He's coming. Jesus is coming. That's why evangelism is so important. Evangelism is a word that's loaded with baggage because we, you know, we have all these images of, especially my generation, the word evangelism is so loaded with Im- like images of you know, someone standing on a street corner with a sign. It's like, you know, turn or burn or something. You know, those images come, come to your mind. This is the problem, though, is... And this applies to probably a lot of you in the room, but specifically to my generation. My, my generation was really bad with this. We reacted to a lot of that stuff. We didn't want to be, we didn't want to be the weird Christians. We didn't want to be the radical Christians. You know, you know I, when people do that, people think bad of Christ, and there's truth to all of that. But what happened is my generation said, we don't want to look like the weird Christians. We don't want to look like the crazy Christians. And so we don't evangelize at all. And if you're not evangelizing at all, you just don't look Christian at all. Now, I'm not saying that some of you have the gift of evangelism. Some of you are really good at it. Some of you, it scares you just thinking about. In some way, every one of us is called to be a spreader of this good news. And for some of you, that's probably like, you're going out event, like you're, it's Friday night, time to go out evangelizing. And for some of you, your context is probably, man, I'm just gonna, I'm praying for my aunt, I'm gonna tell her I'm praying for her, I'm gonna tell her I love her, and if she ever wants to talk about the good news I found in Jesus, that I'm here. So it looks different for everybody. Some of you are sharp, so you're gonna go do some public debates on, you know, the historicity of the Gospels accounts. Great, that's not everywhere, it's gonna look different. But evangelism matters because Jesus is going to destroy and drive out evil from his city. And um, someone told us, someone told us at one point, and God's grace got a hold of us. And for some of you in the room, it might be that day for you to, to finally bow the knee to King Jesus. God's bringing a kingdom in which he's king. It's not a democracy. It's not where everyone gets a vote. It's a monarchy. God's king. Bow the knee. And the way that happens is because Jesus participated in the greatest story ever told. See, hell is the place, Gehenna is the place that's outside of the city where evil is quarantined for all eternity. And this outside of this city theme mirrors a theme that takes place all throughout Scripture. In scripture, wherever there's like a massive sin, the punishment is exile. You get driven out from the place God wants you to be. So in Genesis, you get driven out of Eden, get pushed away. As the story goes on, as sin continues, you get farther and farther away from Eden. You get east of Eden, further and further. God's people build a city, Jerusalem, the peace of God. They refuse to bow to the rightful king. What happens? Exile. Jerusalem is destroyed. The people are taken out of it. And so this idea of exile goes all throughout Scripture, and then the very idea of Gehenna is based upon this. It's being kicked out of the place God wants you to be. And the gospel is this, that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to earth, and he takes upon himself the sins of the world, and he takes upon himself the punishment that humanity deserves. So where does Jesus die? outside of the city. On what? A cross, the cursed tree. 
Who surrounds him? Metaphorically in the Psalms, it's the dogs and the evildoers. They mock and they scoff and they blaspheme God. And he dies in the hell of the cross to bring heaven to you. We call this the great exchange. Jesus takes the punishment of humanity. He dies on your behalf so that you can receive forgiveness of sins, so that you can say, God, I don't want to be evil. I don't want to be wicked, but it's in me. I need your forgiveness, and I need your spirit every single day to make me more and more like Jesus. I want to long for your second coming. I want to see the ending of evil and suffering. I want to do that, but I can't do it without you, so God, fill my life. Fill me with your spirit. And at the cross, Jesus secures that. He goes to the hell of the cross, the cursed death, to make heaven be available to you. But make no mistake about it, however controversial this message is today, at the end of the day, God will drive out evil. It will be punished. It will be destroyed. And it's something that doesn't fit with with modern people. And especially it doesn't fit with people who haven't lived lives of suffering. Let me tell you, if you had your child trafficked, you would you'd have a different understanding of justice. You would long for the day for the king to bring his recompense. And so as Christians, we place hell in the goodness of God. God has found a way to save his people, forgive his people, redeem his people, and drive out evil. Our hope is this. Our future hope is that Our future hope is for the day when the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord, Revelation 11, 15, when God brings all things into subjection under Christ's feet, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28, when the earth, the earth, when the earth is flooded with the glorious presence of God as the waters cover the sea, Habakkuk 2, 14, when creation is delivered from its groaning under the weight of sin into the glorious freedom of the righteous reign of God, Romans 8, 18 through 21. God's purpose is not to get us out of earth and into heaven. It's to reconcile heaven and earth, and anyone who doesn't want to be a part of that reconciliation process gets kicked out. Evangelism matters. The story matters. Uh, The ushers are going to pass out communion. Worship team, come back up. However you wrestle with concepts of heaven or hell or the end, if something in your gut is picturing God as evil or, or some type of character flaw, like he just doesn't get it, you have to understand, no, God is good all of the time, not just a little bit, not just sometimes extravagantly good, better than you can ever imagine good. So however you're envisioning it, you have to have it aligned with scripture and aligned with the goodness of God. And both heaven and hell tell the story of the good creator God who creates a world made for human beings to flourish. Intruders enter the story. Satan, sin, and death. What's even worse than just those intruders entering the story is that Satan, sin, death stuff gets inside of us, and it's in every one of us. God could eliminate evil right now, 
but that means the end of all human beings. God has found a way to bring about forgiveness and reconciliation. And if you choose to bow the knee to him, you will be allowed in the new shalom of God, where you will live in new heavens, new earth with him for all eternity. But in order to secure that, someone had to go to hell on your behalf. Someone had to go to the cross. Someone had to go into the, the pit, the place that is the worst of all things. The cross is the worst image available in the first century Jewish world. It's the worst. So when God picks the types of executions, the way he can die, he doesn't pick an easy one. He picks the one that corresponds to the punishment deserved, the worst possible death, the worst possible punishment. And out of love, he takes it upon himself so that you and I can be reconciled to him. When we take communion, we are reflecting on that. Please stand. Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, we remember that you went to the cross to open the gates of heaven for us to walk in. And Jesus says, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. We drink it and we promise to proclaim his death and resurrection until we return. Lord, as a key theme from our study in 1 Peter and even this series, we don't want to get comfortable here. We don't want to just live the good life. We want to serve you and proclaim your death and resurrection. And Lord, we recognize there is immense evil suffering, horrendous things taking place every single day. And so, Lord, as we take this, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come, drive out evil, destroy wickedness, Lord. We long for your return. Father, as we turn to worship, may we <coughs> realign our thoughts about you, about heaven, about hell, that we would realign them with Scripture that we would see the story being told in the Bible as the story of the great king who will return to his city and drive out evil. May we long for that day, and may we take that second coming so serious that we in turn take evangelism serious. May every Christian in this room be inspired and convicted to evangelize, tell people the good news, in whatever way God's called them to do that. You've called them to do that. It's going to look different for everybody, but may you Convict us and inspire us, and may we see people come to know your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.